Uh, there is an art and a science to writing a good thank you letter. From a young age, we're conjoled, we're pressured by our mums. Write a note to auntie and uncle. Say thank you for that birthday money. Come on, send a letter of appreciation to grandma for your Christmas toys. Hey, hey, why don't you FaceTime your cousins to let them know that you really like the T-shirt that they bought you? Uh, as a child, uh, you're trying to make this whole thank you process as short and as simple as possible. So if you're going to write a card, you find the smallest card that you could possibly find. And then you can write, Dear Grandma, thanks for the beach towel, love Paul. Because the card is so small, that's all there's room for. Job done. Now, as you get older, the thank you cards get a bit more newsy, a bit more sincere. And the protocols for card writing change. Can you just send them a text message? Or should you write a proper email? Or do you actually have to get a pen and write something on a piece of paper and post it to them? If you give them a gift and they give you a gift at exactly the same time, like, like Christmas or something... Is that a fair exchange? So no cards are required? What do you do if you get an unexpected gift? You know, a gift out of the blue. A gift not connected to a birthday or any particular event. Just a random gift. Well, that's going to require an extra special response. It's going to require a heartfelt expression of genuine thanks for the surprising and touching kindness that you've been shown. You see, when it comes to writing cards and saying thank you, there are good manners to observe. Well, the Apostle Paul has written to the Philippians a thank you letter. Now, he isn't responding to a birthday present that he's received. He, he doesn't send a text message or a small card. That won't do the trick. No, the Philippians have taken up a collection, and this is in the unexpected category. They've sent Epaphroditus to deliver the money to Paul, who's in prison in Rome, awaiting trial. Uh, now, we have to remember that this kind of prison is not government-funded. Prisoners paid for everything they need, and if they didn't have money or they didn't have help from outside, they would literally starve to death. So to receive this important gift out of the blue, that rates as an extra special thank you from Paul. And so he writes a fully-fledged letter covering all sorts of topics, including thanks for the help. But any child could tell Paul that he is making a complete hash of saying thank you. First mistake. He leaves his thank you to the very end. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. It's almost like a PS tacked on at the end. Second mistake. Uh, don't get snarky or rude. What's with the... At last you've renewed your concern for me. Third mistake, don't make it sound like you don't really need the gift, that you're content to go without. That sounds ungrateful more than thankful. Fourth mistake, no sensible child would ever say, not that I desire your gifts. I mean, talk like that is not going to get you a repeat present. What's going on with Paul? Doesn't he know how to write a decent thank you letter? 
Well, in the previous verse to our section, verse 9, Paul urges the Philippians, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Uh, Paul has just said, model your Christian lives on me uh, and the example I set and the teaching that I give. And now he expresses his gratitude for their gift. And as he does so, he's going to help the Philippians. He's going to help all Christians. He's going to help us here at Hastings Baptist Church by carefully talking about money. The prickly, awkward topic of money. Money for Christians, money in churches, money in gospel workers. You see, the Apostle Paul is doing much more than merely writing, Dear Philippians, thanks for the coins, love Paul. Uh, In this letter, Paul urges the Philippians to take up the challenge of seeing the gospel spread in advance. And if they're going to do that, then they will need to grow in maturity when it comes to dealing with money. Be a very big mistake to think that standing firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, that those, those core activities won't impact our lifestyles or touch our bank accounts. Now, Paul has been pushing hard in this letter on the relationship between a gospel church and a, him as a gospel worker and, and, and talking about it as a partnership relationship. And that partnership perspective is going to shape his approach to the conversation of money. Now, interestingly, as we'll see, Paul really doesn't talk about that much about the gift. He doesn't thank them because it was so big, or he doesn't tell them what he's going to spend the money on. He's much more interested in what the gift reveals about them. For Paul, it is literally the thought that counts in the giving of their gift. Uh, In this letter, uh, one of the big themes uh, is about right gospel thinking. Right thinking. And that thinking word is there in verse 10. uh, Hiding behind behind in our translations, uh, your concern, it's your thinking about me. Because at the top of Paul's list of important things is not a big bag of money so much as the Philippians thinking rightly about their partnership with him in the gospel. There are all sorts of reasons why people give money towards gospel work. What's the difference between giving money to charity or giving money because you are a partner in the work? We're going to think about that idea. We're going to think about it uh, through two headings as we look at uh, the two sections that are here. Uh, Firstly, Christians and the material possessions they have or don't have. And then secondly, churches and the financial support they give or don't give. Firstly, Christians and the material possessions they have or don't have. Paul says three times that he's very thankful and grateful for their gift. But he's also choosing his words very carefully. I rejoiced, verse 10, greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Hang on. What's going on with the at last? It sounds like that time that you sent a card to your grandmother about three months after your birthday, about a few weeks before Christmas. 
to express your thanks for the gift that she gave you. And she fires back, Oh, I'm glad you finally got around to sending me a thank you note for your birthday. I mean, is that what Paul is doing here? Is he complaining that the Philippians have been shamefully slow in sending him some money? Uh, no, I don't think that's, that's the case. Now, it could be that Paul is expressing his gratitude that at, after all this time, it, it means years since I was with you, after all this time, you're still helping me? Oh, that's amazing. How wonderful. I'm so grateful. Or it, it could even be that, that this is the way they spoke. They're sending him a gift, and they're, they're telling him when it arrives, look, we're glad at last that the opportunity uh, has lined up with our desire. And perhaps he's just repeating back to them. So that when he writes back, he simply quotes and says, look, look, I'm glad, like you're glad, that yes, at last this has taken place. Now, certainly the context of the next few verses makes it abundantly clear that, that Paul wasn't sitting in a Roman prison moaning about how slack the Philippians were. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, Paul is glad about the gift for what it reveals about the Philippians, but again, choosing his words very carefully, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. That is, I'm very grateful for your gift, but don't get the wrong idea. I'm not sitting around here waiting for money to turn up. You see, there is a way of uh, responding to, to a gift that... that you're trying to ingratiate yourself to the giver. You know, the message is keep doing that. Yeah, 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 send another gift. Oh, I'll expect one in the future. But Paul puts some space between what they've given and what he needs. Now, the apostle is concerned that nobody thinks he's in it for the money. And how does Paul hold that space between those giving money and his material needs? He says he's learned the lesson of being content. Now, Paul said, copy my example, verse 9. Well, here's the example to copy. Be content with your material possessions. And this is something that uh, Paul says that he's learned, and he wants the believers to learn this lesson as well. Uh, Paul's life experiences were such that he had known what it was to be warm and well-fed, and he also knew what it was to be cold and naked. Uh, not everybody can say that. Not everybody's lived on uh, both sides of the street. Not everybody's experienced uh, how the other half lives. But Paul did. Uh, if you remember in the book of Acts, when he's in Philippi, he was looked after in the home of the wealthy businesswoman Lydia. All the luxury that goes with that. And then we see him severely beaten and locked up in some dingy prison. Paul says he's learnt contentment from both of those situations. If he had to learn how to be content, if he had to learn, then, then it's a process. It happens over time. He was bad at being content. He got better, and he mastered it. 
It's an acquired skill. It's a frame of mind to be cultivated. And so the question to ask is, being, are you content with your material questions, possessions, your, your material uh, position in life? Is that a lesson that you've learned? Uh, learning the lesson of contentment, knowing the secret of contentment, doesn't, doesn't happen through some inner resolve. Uh, it's not a matter of sort of stoic self-sufficiency. I'm of sterner stuff than someone else or of Buddhist detachment from life. Nothing means anything. Now, Paul says that he can cope with hard times and with being hungry because Jesus gives him strength. Now, Paul says that he can uh, cope with living in a luxurious home with plenty of food because Jesus gives him strength. He is neither overwhelmed by poverty nor intoxicated by prosperity because Jesus gives him strength. See, this is the context for verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Uh, despite all those uh, sports people, you know, with their bandages on their hands, with Phil 4.13 written on it, uh, this is not a verse about I can do anything or everything. Now, this is a promise that when times are financially troubling, when the bank account is under serious pressure, when the message to the kids is, we're just going to have to dial Christmas back right down, uh, Jesus will give me the strength to be content in my material position and with my material possessions. See, Philippians 4.13 is not saying, I can do anything I put my mind to. Philippians 4.13 is saying, by Christ's strength, I can be calm in adversity and I can be humble in prosperity. You see, the question isn't how much do we have. The question is, are we content with whatever we have? And the answer to the question comes through our experience of the one who strengthens us for all things. Now, why does Paul want the Philippians to learn about being content? Why does, why does he use his own situation as a modern example to teach them about being content? Well, because if the gospel is going to advance, then it's going to cost them financially to make that happen. At the small personal level, individuals telling others the gospel, that's a free of charge activity. Money doesn't really come into it. But if you want to start a church, it costs money. Uh, if you want gospel workers leading, serving in church, it costs money. If you want to send a gospel worker to another city or another country, it costs money. Now, you see, if your ambition is six Christians meeting in a lounge, money's not really a factor. But if you want the gospel to spread in Hastings or in New Zealand, or around the world, then money is one of the key ingredients required to make that happen. And most of that money gets spent on freeing people up from paid secular employment so that they can volunteer their time and their energy to gospel work. How much money does it take? Well, some would say, look, give those gospel workers and those missionaries the absolute bare minimum. They should learn to be content with very little. 
Uh, the problem with that approach is that it, at best it's a demonstration of charity. It's not gospel partnership. Gospel partnership is pictured through shared contentment. I think of it this way. What are you content with? Are you content with a bicycle or a car? Well, if you think you need the car, what are you going to give your missionary friend? The bicycle or the car? Why would you expect the gospel worker to be more content with less than you are content to have? The Apostle Paul says he's learned to be content in riches or in poverty, and he wants churches and Christians to share in this contentment, whether it is riches or poverty. And gospel partnership means that we will share the contentment together, which, which classically means it's a, an equal level of experience. Christians and the material possessions they have or don't have our churches and the final financial support they give or don't give. Uh, again, Paul restates his gratitude for the gift. Verse 14, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. And just as he did before, his focus is not on the bag of money, but on the Philippians sharing in Paul's troubles, literally partnering in Paul's troubles. Uh, this isn't something new or surprising by the Philippians. They've, they've been partners with Paul from the very beginning. For, for at least 10 years, they've been supporting Paul. Verse 15, Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Uh, you see, the Philippians have an outstanding reputation for being uh, financially invested in Paul's gospel ministry. And Paul thanks and praises them for their, their pattern of generous giving. But as he does before, he kind of puts some space between himself and their giving. See, verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is more be credited to your account. That is, their giving is a sign of their relationship with the Lord. Their, their generosity is a sign of their Christian maturity. It's a sign of spiritual weakness and Christian immaturity that other churches did not share. It is the partnership word again. Other churches did not partner with Paul in the matter of giving and receiving. Uh, when the New Testament talks about giving and generosity, it, it, it kind of sounds optional. Uh, the Old Testament had the, the laws and rules about tithes and temple taxes, but the New Testament doesn't have any such rules like that. It talks about just freely giving. So it sounds like uh, Christians give to charity. It just so happens to their that their chosen charity is the church. Uh, but that's the wrong picture. You see, do parents give charity to their children? Are the meals and the clothes charitable gifts for their children? If you provided your children uh, like you provide 
for your chosen charity, would your children be malnourished and dressed in rags? There's no law or rule that says parents must generously support their children. But we all take a very dim view of parents who deprive or neglect their children spending their money on their own pleasures. Uh, Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul takes the Corinthian church to task for, for treating him and other gospel workers like charity cases, just flicking a few dollars their way. Uh, In this letter, the apostle praises the Philippians for their long-term generosity. Their gift showed that they were partners in the gospel with Paul. So verse 17, not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. See, Paul doesn't want them to be a church that cares only about him. As much as he wants them to be a church that cares about the gospel and the gospel going forward, long after Paul has left the scene. Now, concerned for the gospel and the cause of Christ, we'll see them giving gifts to Paul, but it's the motivation, it's the thinking involved that matters. Because it's not just about the Philippians helping a gospel worker they like, the Apostle Paul. Ultimately, it's about the Philippians going on, giving up, financial resources for the sake of someone they don't even know that that person might be able to hear the gospel. See, being a partner is, is, is a very different way of thinking. There's a big difference between giving money to a charity or giving money because you are a partner in the work. And the big question is, are you a partner in the work? Imagine two friends with a passion for fine coffee and hospitality. And they, just start, they decide to start a business together. Uh, they've, they've done the farmer's market weekend tent thing. It's exceeded their expectations, so it's time to take the next step. They're going to lease a shop, open a cafe. One of them puts in some money from their savings. The other extends the, the mortgage on the house. Uh, both sets of their parents kick in 10% to get the ball rolling. And off they go. Uh, One of them is going to keep working their day job as an insurance assessor. The other one's going to scale down his computer contracting work and he's going to uh, serve in the cafe full time. That's a partnership. When there's thinking and planning about how the cafe will go and operate, all those owners are going to have a voice. They're interested, they're concerned. Yes, the guy who's there full-time will have a concern, but, but so will the, the insurance assessor. He's very keen. He's invested in seeing this business grow. And when there are problems, equipment breaks down, thieves steal your inventory, that they need more money, they're going to sit down as owners to work out a plan. They aren't looking for charity to solve the issues. They're looking for investment. And that investment's going to come from among the partners, among the owners. That's what gospel partnership looks like. Are you a partner in this church? Do you you own it? Well, Paul talks about this sort of partnership in three ways. Uh, Verse 14, their gift was good because it was a way of sharing, a way of partnering in his suffering. See, Paul's suffering in prison. 
But by them going without in order to put money aside for Paul, they are also suffering. It's a partnership in suffering. In verse 15, there's a partnership of giving and receiving. Now, Paul travels down the road to Thessalonica and tells them about Jesus, and some are converted and the church is started. Who planted the church in Thessalonica? Well, Paul did the preaching and teaching, but the Philippians provided the financial support so Paul could do his ministry. They did the giving, he did the receiving, and a church was planted in Thessalonica. Same thing happens in Acts 18. Paul goes a, a bit further on in Greece. He comes eventually to Corinth. And we read in Acts chapter 18 uh, that in Corinth, Paul worked as a tent maker. That was his trade. That was how he earned his living. And so there is Paul, six days a week, making tents. One day a week, he could go to the synagogue trying to persuade people about Jesus. And then we read uh, Acts 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Let me just unpack that for you. That is, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Philippi with a bag of money to meet Paul's material needs so that he no longer needed to do tent-making, he could then devote himself to full-time gospel work. You see, the Philippians have partnered with Paul in giving and receiving. And churches have been planted. How many churches have you personally planted? Please don't say none. Uh, over the years, Hastings Baptist Church has planted four churches. Flaxmere Baptist, Village Baptist, Christian Believers Ministry, Heritonga Community Church. Of course, there are the leaders and the, the teams of people who have gone out and uh, established those churches. But they didn't do it by themselves. Some more, some less. But all of them have been launched with support from here through us as partners, as investors. See, it's a partnership in giving and receiving. And the third way that Paul talks about partnership is with regard to the return on the investment that is shared by the partners. It'd be a mistake to think that, that Paul and the Philippians were involved in a kind of two-way partnership. No, actually, there's another major partner at work in the cause of the gospel. God. From the throne of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ is directing and empowering the work of the gospel. And so, even though the money goes from the Philippians to the Apostle Paul, for which he's very grateful, verse 18, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. Even though the gift has gone and been given to Paul, that gift is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. See, there's a very real sense in which the money gifted is an expression of devotion and sacrifice to the Lord. And the return on the investment comes from God. See, verse 19, 
And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The Philippians have given sacrificially, and yet the promises they won't miss out on anything essential in this life, and they will attain everything in the life to come. Churches and the financial support they give or don't give. Now, when this letter was read out uh, in the Philippian church on that first Sunday when Epaphras had uh, come back home, the last thing that people here read out is the thing that they would be immediately discussing and focusing on. It's this conversation about money, about the gift that they gave, and Paul's gratitude. Paul didn't make a mistake by leaving his thanks for their gift to the very end. It's part of his overall package, if you like, the climax of his conversation about recruiting the Philippians to invest as gospel partners. See, who knows what will happen with Paul? If the Philippians are only invested in him, then when he dies or goes off the scene, well, that's the end of their gospel project for their country. But if they are gospel partners, if they are deeply invested in the work, then the work carries on long after Paul is gone. For them to go, to go from being a good gospel church to be an outstanding gospel church, oh, well, it means that they'll need to be united around the cause of seeing people won to Christ and new churches started. And it'll mean being willing to stand firm for the truth of the gospel despite opponents and one of the markers of passion and partnership for the gospel is giving money to fuel the work and the workers. Our churches can and have failed to properly fund gospel ministry and gospel ministers. Now, Paul talks about that in this chapter. It happened in his day. It's still happening in our day. The gospel doesn't advance through charity. See, charity isn't typically sacrificial. Charity is, is a kind gift, a good thing to do, but usually it's out of the excess, out of the leftover. But investing as a partner in the cause of the gospel, that's deeper and more costly. If we don't think about investing our money, then we are probably not thinking about investing our lives. The Lord Jesus wants us to be invested in the cause of the gospel with all that we have and all that we are. And he will deliver a wonderful return on that investment according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.